I'm so pumped to be here. I'm glad I'm feeling better because I cannot wait to share with you what uh, this message today. I just cannot wait. We're in Mark chapter 7. If you have your Bible, we're continuing our series. Uh, Everybody figure out what our series is. Um, The signature of Jesus. Yeah, kind of hard to miss. We're in Mark chapter 7 today, and the uh, title of my message is, What Did Jesus Teach About the Problem of Religion? What did he teach about that? I'm pretty pumped because I, uh, just as a side note, I just got word uh, this last week that I'll be defending my dissertation two weeks from Monday, two weeks from tomorrow. So I'm pretty uh, excited about that. And at the end of that uh, two-hour grueling exam, I will hear one of two things. Dr. Kennedy, welcome to the guild. Or Mr. Kennedy, it looks like you still have some work to do. So uh, please pray for me. I'll be studying my brains out. Please, please pray that uh, it will go well, and I'll hear the first thing, not the second thing. And we've all heard the horror stories. I'll tell you what breaks my heart in ministry is turning on the news and hearing some story about some altar boy who's come forward and has been abused for years by some sinful, hypocritical priest who was supposed to be their spiritual guardian and became their spiritual abuser. And that's sad. You think that's whacked? I, I also am deeply saddened as a minister of the gospel. Whenever I turn on the news and I see some weird, freaky cult has lured some hapless victims in and duped them and caused them to become subservient to tedious religion, that breaks my heart, man. I also think that it's a shame whenever I watch a YouTube video of some preacher in some Christian church who is literally screaming and yelling at his people and berating them and making them feel about this big. That breaks my heart. That is called spiritual abuse. That's what that's called. And spiritual abusers have some common characteristics. They typically are charismatic individuals who sort of portray this outward perfectionism. They usually equate personal uh, devotion to them personally as devotion to God. They typically try to control and manipulate their followers through shame and guilt. They often, more often than not, they use the money that comes into their ministry for personal gain. They also put impossibly high burdens on their people, yet they themselves refuse to carry their own religious burdens. They tend to use the language of exclusivity. If you're not a part of this church, you're out. You won't be rapture ready. All of these aspects of spiritual abusers could be ripped out of the headlines today, but they also could be ripped out of the headlines in the first century. Because Jesus had to deal with his own brand of spiritual abusers, and they were called the Pharisees. The word Pharisee in Hebrew is the word purishim, and it means the pure ones, the separate ones. We're the good ones, and the rest of you are the bad ones. And so we're going to read today this clash, this contest between Jesus and the purishim. And here it is. Chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Now when the Pharisees had some... And some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. This is around Jesus. 
they noticed that his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them ritually. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it ritually. And there are also many other traditions that they observe like this, the washing of cups, pots, and kettles, and utensils. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not follow our ritual hand-washing traditions? And that is started a knockdown, drag-out conversation with Jesus over this issue. So this passage draws a sharp distinction between genuine faith and phony religion. And Jesus is going to show us, Mark is going to show us how Jesus leaves his signature on wrong-headed religion. The first thing that we learn from Mark chapter 7 is this, that Jesus wants us to be biblical in our approach. As soon as they challenged Jesus for not following their traditions that they had made up, that they were honoring, Jesus immediately turns to the scriptures, and he says this, you know, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you phonies. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are way far away from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely rules taught by men. Underline that right there in verse 7. Their teachings are merely rules taught by men. And so this passage is really the crux of the whole story because Jesus quotes Isaiah and says, you know what? Isaiah was actually talking about you guys. And so it establishes Jesus' approach And then Jesus gives them a specific example of how they have set aside the scriptures in favor of their man-made traditions. He says, for example, gentlemen, (laughs) you know how the Ten Commandments says you're to honor your father and mother? But you say that a person can take all of the money that he or she has set aside for his parents' retirement, give it to the temple, that is, give it to my ministry, And that'll be called a special gift to God. And therefore, you don't have to follow Moses' command written in the scriptures. So Jesus gives them a concrete example of how they often flout the commands of God, the word of God, for the sake of their elders' traditions, the traditions that they made up. So Jesus first establishes his approach. He's a Bible man. Jesus is a scripture man. And these guys have obscured the scriptures with their man-made traditions. So he establishes his method, but then he establishes the message. The very Isaiah prophecy highlights what's wrong with them. Number two, Jesus wants worship from the heart. The very scripture Jesus cited exposed a problem with their religion, and that is that they were all about the outside of the cup. Jesus said, you wash, you diligently, vigorously wash the outside of the dish, but inside it is putrefied. It was an analogy of their condition. He was saying, on the inside, you're full of sin, but you are polishing up the outside of the dish. 
Jesus tells them a person is not defiled by the things they put in their mouth or the way they wash their kosher food. That doesn't defile them. What defiles them are the things that come out of them, the sin, the wretched behavior. And they were the paragons. They were the examples of people who didn't live up to their profession. The Pharisees and teachers of the law had reduced Israelite religion to a matter of mere yammering, flapping lips. They had missed the point altogether. They had a watertight system of religion, but they had no passionate devotion for God's presence, for his transforming, empowering presence. I wish I could go back in time and give them my book. which happens to be titled, Father, Son, and the Other One, Experiencing the Holy Spirit as a Transforming, Empowering Presence. (laughs) Wherever books are sold. (laughs) But they missed this. This was the fulfillment of their religion. The fulfillment of is that God wanted to invade their space. God didn't want to fill up every little piece of space with religion. They opted out for that. They opted out for Jesus' living devotion instead for a watertight system of religion. Now, this doesn't mean that the Christian faith has nothing to do and that it's just a matter of mere schmaltzy sentiment. It's not just emotional gush. We're passionate, heartfelt worshipers, but we are called also to obey Jesus from the heart. In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus told the disciples, go out and and I want you to disciple all ethnic groups by doing two things, baptize them and then teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. So we do obey, but we obey from the heart. uh, My kids are my kids. And nothing that they ever do will make them not my kids. They're born into my family. They are of me. But just because they are of me and nothing they do can make them not of me does not mean they don't have rules to follow. In fact, they have lots of rules in living in my house. One of them is to clean the kitchen every night. And so just about every night I, after dinner, I stand up in the kitchen and I say, okay, kids, Time to clean the kitchen. And what do you think their response is? (gasps) Yes. Woo! My favorite part of the day, man. No, it's not that. It's, uh, exactly what you just did. Why do we have to clean the kitchen? We go through that for about 10 minutes. There's literally on a chalkboard on the wall that Carrie has, there's literally a list of five or six things that they have to do in order to get the kitchen clean, and they have to march through them. And if they forget, I point them over to the list. And one day, my little uh, boy, Logan, he wrote an extra number seven on there, and he said, don't clean the kitchen. (laughs) They don't want to do that. But they have to, and every night... When my kitchen, I stand in the middle of my kitchen, and it is a gleaming, beautiful, you can eat off of, the, uh, off of the table itself, and it's clean. I know that that was obedience, not from the heart. <laughs> and I just wish one time in their lives, in my life, that they, I wouldn't have to do all the threatening 
and the beatings. <laughs> I'm just joking. I don't beat my kids very often. And um, <laughs> I wish I didn't have to do that. I wish they came down to the couch where I'm sitting watching the news or working on my paper, and I wish they would say, oh, Father, <laughs> we are so grateful that you work three jobs so that we can live and we would like to clean this entire house from our heart. I wish they would do that. But they ain't going to do that. But this is what God wants. God does not want... The person who is trapped by religion is just going through the motions. He is just going down the list, checking it off, and they're just religious chores. But God doesn't want people who think that they have to come to church because of religious chores. He wants people who worship him passionately from the heart and say, Heavenly Father, thank you for Kmart. I hate every white tile out in that lobby. They're, no matter how much we polish them, folks, they're just polished turds. Sorry. If you're religious. You won't like that. But I'm so thankful for those polished turds. I'm so thankful for those tiles. I'm so thankful for the people who come and volunteer and polish those things and make them look as good as they can for Sunday morning. I am so grateful. And our heart needs to be effusive devotion. And the Pharisees had missed this. Number three. Third thing we learn about this contest between Jesus and the super-religious is this. Jesus wants us to live in freedom. Oh, yeah, we're supposed to be Bible people. Oh, yeah, we're supposed to live according to the scriptures. We're supposed to live in passionate devotion from the heart, but we also need freedom in non-essential areas. And this is what their tradition, the Pharisees, let me, let me take you to school a little bit, okay? The Pharisees were perpetuating, they were the purveyors and the guardians of what was called the oral Torah, the written Torah is the law of Moses, the scriptures, to which Jesus appealed. But the oral Torah is a circuitous, complex system of extra-biblical laws that they created to hedge around the Torah, and this was the contest. And there were so many of them that they had stifled and suffocated the people. They left no room for ambiguity. They left no margin whatsoever for personalization of the law. None. They filled in every blank. They dotted every I. They crossed every T. And they taught the people, if you want to obey Moses, then here are the ten steps you need to do to obey Moses. And Jesus said, oh, bunk. He did. He said, whatever, whatever. It's not that hard, guys. Give people some space. He wanted to give them freedom. Paul said this in Galatians. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. He didn't set you free to make you again in bondage to the law, to the Torah. He didn't set you free so that he could answer every mystery. He wants you to live with some space. He wants you to live with some margin and mystery in your life. Look at what Jesus said about these guys. It's so tough. John 10.10, he says this. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. Now, we typically quote this as if Jesus is talking about the devil, but he's not. Jesus is not contrasting himself with the devil in that passage. 
Jesus is contrasting himself with the Pharisees. In verses 1 through 6, Jesus is trying to give them a parable. It's called the parable of the good shepherd. He tells them, I'm the good shepherd, you're the bad shepherds. You're abusing the people, and I have come to set them free. I have come to be their good shepherd. In verse 7, the Pharisees go, huh? They don't understand. And Jesus says, okay, every shepherd before me, he reemphasizes his point, is a thief and a robber. I'm the good shepherd. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it in its fullest aspect. And so he's not talking about the devil. He's talking about them. They are the ones with their stifling, suffocating tradition that stole the people's joy. They are the ones that took away from the people something Moses wanted to give them in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 when he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the, the Lord is a chad, one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love him effusively. And they took that away from the folks. And Jesus came to give it back. So they destroyed good religion with bad religion. God illustrated this to me when uh, my kids were little. Uh, how many of you kids like that game, Shoots and Ladders? Played that game? Yeah, they have this version of Shoots and Ladders, this newer one, where um, Shoots and Ladders is on one side of it, and I was out writing my original, it was actually my original proposal for this book a few years ago, and I was on the back deck, and I was writing, and I came inside, and, and when you walk in from the back deck into my kitchen, you can look down into the living room, and I could see them all laying around this, this board of Shoots and Ladders. And shoots and ladders is just as basically this game with a bunch of ladders and a bunch of little slides, and you, you move up the board with a few favorable flicks of the spinner. You hit a shoot, and you go back down to the abyss. Except my kids had never read the instructions, and they were so little, none of them knew what the rules were. So my five-year-old Logan decided that he was going to make up the rules as if he knew what they were. And they just thought he knew. So I sat and over the banister, laughing my head off, watching them play in my little five-year-old, making these rules up ad hoc, just on the fly, just as he went. And they got so frustrated with him, they wanted to take the board and break it over his little head, his little round head. They were so mad at him because no one was advancing up the board <laughs> with his complicated, ridiculous set of rules. So they flipped the board over, and you know what's on the other side? Candyland. <laughs> now, I think Candyland is a ripoff because it looks so delicious, doesn't it? I mean, it looks so good. I mean, Grandma Nut and Princess Frostine, they beckon you as if they're going to reward you with a trip to Baskin Robbins if you win. You salivate over gumdrop mountains. You can't wait to explore lollipop woods. And all the little high-fiving children and ginger man, gingerbread man, man, they, it's deceptive because there is no candy in that game. As a matter of fact, that board just tastes like cardboard. Don't ask me how I know that. And so my kids start playing this game, and intuitively, right away, they know how to play it. I don't know how they know how to play it, but it's easy. Candyland, you pick a purple card and clop, clop, clop over to a purple space you go. 
You hit the the licorice square and you're stuck. Lose a turn. It's very simple. And this is, in essence, an illustration of what Jesus did in the first century. The Pharisees were playing this complicated game of religion with the people, and they got to decide what the rules were. And in their system, no one was advancing up the board. No one was getting closer to God. And Jesus came and he flipped the board on them. And he said, it's just like this, guys. You love God and you love people. And it's just that simple. And if you make it any more complicated than that, you have been bitten by the bug of wrong-headed religion. And you need to be cured. And there is no greater cure immunization for wrong-headed religion than effusive worship from the heart. And so Jesus came to reform bad religion. So let's rewind. Let's make some observations that will help you apply some of these lessons. First of all, we need, here's what we need to do. We need to make sure that we don't elevate church tradition to the status of Scripture. We need to make sure that we don't do that. And it's very easy for us to do that, isn't it? Oh, it could be anything. It could be any church tradition that we've always done it this way. Have you ever heard that? Remember the woman at the well in John chapter 4? What did she say to Jesus? We have always worshipped at this mountain. And that becomes our response too. Lord, we've always worshipped at this mountain. This is our special way of doing it, Jesus. But Jesus says, listen, the only thing that's sacred is what comes from Scripture. And when the Scriptures tell us to do it, We are bound to it. But when it's our tradition, it can be helpful. It can be a helpful reminder. It can help us build community. It can be a very helpful tradition. Jesus had helpful traditions that were not necessarily Old Testament. But when they come in conflict with the scriptures, that tradition has to go. So we have to be careful that we become Bible people, not our man-made tradition people. Be very careful. But secondly, we need to be intentional about our worship from the heart. It is so easy to come in and sit on the perimeter and just go through the motions, isn't it? No one knows. And no one can see that inside of me I got a thousand things going on. I got all kinds of stuff I'm trying to work out and figure out and stuff that's stressing me out. And so it takes me a while. I kind of, next thing I know we're on song three and I haven't paid attention to any of the words. It's easy for us to do that. But guys, we need to be intentional about worshiping Jesus from the heart. Not just offering him our yattering and the prattling of religion, but offering him the heart in worship. And thirdly, we need to leave space in the non-essentials. Space in the non-essentials. We love giving you guys application on Sunday morning. I think one of the best compliments uh, anyone has ever paid us is when someone new comes and they say to us, uh, hey, man, wow, this was a new experience. I wasn't just told the gospel. I was told what to do with the gospel. Man, we want to do that for you. We want to give you application. We want to help you figure it out. But ultimately, we want to point you in the right direction so that you can go figure it out for yourself. We want to give you solid doctrine, solid teaching, give you the groundwork, and then let you go. And you become self-feeding disciples of Jesus, and we give you the space, the margin in your life to figure out how these things apply in you and in your family. And lastly, we need to be on guard for spiritual abusers. 
We need to watch out for these people. Because oftentimes they come in and they do just what the Pharisees did to Jesus and his followers. They infiltrate the faithful. They come to our dinners. They come to our meetings. They come to our Bible studies, and they sit there, and they look down at their snarky know-it-all noses at the rest of us and judge us and put the onerous burdens of religion on us. And that is not what God has called us to be. God has called this to be a grace place. He has called this to be a truth place. He has called this to be a place where, free, where captives get set free and people are restored back to relationship with God. Amen? So we need to be on watch for that. Now, how do you confront a spiritual abuser? Just the way Jesus did. Perfectly appropriate for you to say, actually, no, that's not what the Scripture says. Your tradition is not really biblical. I have to do this to people literally almost on a weekly basis where they hit me with something and I have to say, ah, you know, I love you, man, but you're off the mark. And so it's perfectly okay for you to sit down with someone and say, hey, would you, would you just help me help you? Can we cross-examine the scriptures together and see if that's really a biblical thing? That's how you handle it. And then you pray for them, and you don't let, let them abuse the sheep that are in your care, for sure. That's how we apply this message. I'm going to pray with you guys in just a second. Uh, the last thing I wanted to say is this, is we need to hear from you. We love getting those communication cards. Matt pushes those things every single week, but I'm telling you guys, no kidding, when we get those things in, we have our entire staff who's praying for you. If you have a prayer request, we have a prayer team, a network of people who are praying for your needs. And if it's something that you struggle with and someone put the onerous burdens of religion on you and saddled you with that, we need to know it so that we can pray for you and, and possibly counsel you and help you through it. Let's pray. God, we just want to thank you for this amazing opportunity to come into this old Kmart and just worship you from the heart, to listen to biblical truth, to be changed and transformed by it, and then to be set free by the power of God and the truth of God. We are so thankful for that. If you're here this morning and you need Jesus to set you free from the burden of religion, Will you just pray something like this with me? God, I know that it wasn't your fault. Whoever saddled me with these regulations and these things that are not found in your word, God, I don't blame them and I don't blame you. And right now, I just want to invite your Holy Spirit to come and set me free. Come and change my heart and my life. Would you do that? And if you pray in that right now, the Holy Spirit will set you free because the truth will set you free. If you're here today and you just want to recommit yourself to being a grace person, to being a person who walks in relationship with Jesus and who doesn't put the burden of religion on others, will you make that commitment with me this morning as an East Pointer? God, we commit ourselves to being liberators who set people free from the sin of religion 
and bring them and restore them into relationship with you. We want to be that kind of church. We want to be that kind of place. And so, God, right now, we commit ourselves to it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, listen, we're going to take the offering, and there is no better application of this principle of freedom than taking the offering at church. Because it would be so easy for a church like us, and there are many churches that do do this, that just try to guilt you into giving. We don't ever want to do that here. Giving is a privilege. Giving is an act of worship. And this church needs your financial help. It needs your financial investment. There has never been a time, listen, there has never been a time in this church where we have had more people in our classes in Adventureland. Our youth group right now is exploding. It's going wonderful. It's going amazing. God is doing so many amazing things. Every week we hear about lives that are changing. And we have never been more effective in so many ways. And this home, this family of God right here, we need your financial support. But the scripture says, give freely as you have decided in your heart, not under compulsion, not under some kind of religious compulsion, but as you've decided freely in your heart. So we want to encourage you to worship God by giving freely today, okay? God bless you. Let's worship. All right. Awesome. Hey, The Apostle John summed up Jesus' life, the mark he left on this world like this. He said, Jesus was a man full of grace and truth. He was a scripture man and a grace man, a liberty man. Wouldn't that be great if people were to describe us that way when we close it out? Amen? A couple of things that are available for for you. Prayer, if you want, come up front, and we want to pray for you. Also, our next steps and uh, first steps classes, you can sign up for those. Grab a a packet if you made a commitment to Christ for the first time, or if you want more information on that class. And then lastly, please do run straight over to Barnes & Noble and buy my book. That would be awesome. (laughs) I'll have some more copies next week. I'll sign them uh, if you want some. Please buy one, send it to a friend, and it'll set them free. Okay, God bless you. Have a wonderful day.